Welcome to another episode of this silly little show. I am Aaron Lowe, the host. For anyone who might be just joining us, the premise is this. Every week, I find my head has been surgically attached to a different friend and movie lover. Together, we are given a theme, and it is up to us to pick a couple of movies centered around that theme, then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Joining me today is one of my oldest and closest friends, though not necessarily closest in a physical sense, as we haven't- And not that old. I'm not that old. Well, neither of us are that old, and we're not actually that close. I'm being metaphorical here, because we haven't actually occupied the same state in quite a few years. Uh, So joining us all the way from Japan, it is Angus Lost. Angus, how's it going? Oh, you know, could be better, could be worse. I was listening to your intro, and- it strikes me that if you are attached to me, doesn't that make me the host? Yes, definitely. I am in one way the host of this show. You are also the host of this show. So I guess I should be saying we are we're co-hosts. Does that work? Or or well, you are the host of the show. I am your host. That that's true. And thank you very much for allowing me to just rest here awkwardly on your shoulder. That's all right. Don't drill. So you're, like I said, you're over in Japan. You've been there for, how long have you been living there regularly now? My entire adult life. So too many years, decades. <clears throat> what you, okay. Well, I won't get into it. We won't, we don't need it. But <laughs> Silence. Yeah. We know each other. We know each other back uh, from Anchorage, Alaska and UAA and the, um, the Kung Fu school that has been mentioned once in passing on this show. So we go back a little ways and um, yeah, it's, it's good to be talking to you again. Good to see you. Yes. Except that we can't actually see each other. Well, shut up. I'm right here on your shoulder. I can just look over to the side. I can't. (laughs) Oh, okay. So uh, how are things in Japan right now? I know the world is crazy all over, but I, I kind of have a sense that, Maybe it's a little less crazy where you are. Well, if we're going, if we're using the rubric of not America, it's <laughs> a little less crazy just about every place else, isn't it? Um, it sure seems that way. People here have been wearing masks when they're worried about making other people sick since I believe uh, the Spanish flu. So, you know, there's, People just started wearing masks and everyone wears them. It's not a big deal. So the infection rates uh, here are much, much, much lower than the United States, even though we haven't done any sort of lockdown or or anything. Yeah. And that's something like America used to wear masks, too. That, that was a thing during the Spanish flu. It's re- It really feels like a, a habit we should have held on to. There's a yeah. lot of there's yeah. a lot of habits. Well, there's a lot of habits America had that it's good we got rid of them, but there is also a few that it seems like maybe we should have stuck with them. Well, I don't think it would have been that big a deal this time around if it hadn't been made a a political football in some ways, you know? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much. Maybe I'll edit some of this out. But I, I was gonna. <laughs> we I, don't. We don't have to go there. That's not really what this show's about. Again. No, I, I was just uh, saying that I was just gonna say, and I think I probably already told you that it it drives me crazy that we have been preparing for something like this for a hundred years, and that we had plans in place. We had research. We had like data. We could see how it was going in other countries, and we still just shit the bed completely on it. Like we fumbled so badly. Well. It's just it, it's it's proof that good governance isn't granted any more longevity than bad governance. But in, in general, uh, aside from, you know, the masking up and the infection rates, how is life in Japan? Oh, you know, not too bad. Uh, it's still largely a homogenous society. So not being Japanese makes you stick out a bit. But yeah, I can the number of foreigners are on the on the rise, and you know I've been here a while. I don't speak English regularly, so it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. I, I enjoy I, this chance. <laughs> Woohoo! Speaking English, speaking <laughs> the English. Well, I'm glad we could we could we could get this time together and do this, and and anytime in the future. I mean, well, let me not get ahead of myself. We'll see how this episode goes before I tell you you're invited back. <laughs> Ooh. I see. <laughs> okay, so we we have our theme this week, and that mm -hmm. theme is bad Santas. The obvious choices there. I don't think any of us are going to go for it, but we are going to take just a very brief break. It'll just be a couple of seconds for you, and we'll be coming right back to talk about the first of our two movies of the day. We finally found something else than just playing rocks and dirt. This mountain is like a giant icebox. A storing what? We are standing on the biggest burial mound in the world. I know how to do it. Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, is a 2010 fantasy film from Finland, directed by Jalmari Heilander, expanding on a pair of short films that he had made several years e earlier. The film focuses on Pitari, I'm probably mispronouncing that even though I just heard it a bunch of times, a timid preteen boy living in the Finnish province of Lapland with his father. The boy is convinced that a nearby excavation site has unearthed the buried remains of the one true Santa Claus, the Santa Claus of darker myths that was known for punishing naughty children. And when all of the local children begin to go missing, it seems his suspicions may be correct. Now, I've seen this. I'm pretty sure both of us had seen this film before, correct? Oh, I've seen it five or six times, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I saw this when it first came out on video. I think I was working at Blockbuster at the time and we rented it. It was it was a very striking experience. It was very fun. It I haven't seen this movie since then, but it, I, I kind of remembered everything, which is sad to say a little bit of a rarity for me that I, I don't often 
have the details stuck in my mind like they were with this movie. I don't know why I've never revisited over the years, especially because I really enjoyed this viewing. But it is it is a what am I trying to say? It, it it is a movie I feel like should be in in maybe our annual viewing list. There's like my daughter who's 16 now. We have like three or four or five movies that we have to watch every year. And I didn't show her this one this time. I don't know why I didn't. Maybe it, it's all the naked Father Christmases at the end or the, the elves. They're supposed to be elves. Spoiler alert. I think she would really like this one. And I, I think maybe I'm going to have to rewatch this later today or later this week with her. Maybe it'll be added to our uh, annual rotation. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't watched it religiously as part of my holiday experience, but I've been four or five times in a place where people wanted to see a movie that was Christmassy and, and not Hallmarky and okay to watch in front of children. And this kind of, ticked all the boxes you know it's it's clever and it's funny and i find the characters weirdly endearing like all of them oh they're they're all really great they're all like even pitari's father who is kind of distant and they've recently you get the that they've recently lost the mother in the family it, it seems like this is the first christmas without her and he he's he's a bit distant and he's very strict like always seems a little gruff, but then you also see that he stays up all night trying to cook a Christmas ham and fails utterly. It, he, he definitely like cares about his son, but even in the moments where he's being a little bit mean, isn't the right word, but, but he's being, um, gruff maybe. Yeah. Gruff, gruff. He's being gruff that there's still an affection there. And the kid is, he fits that classic Spielberg, like Amblin Entertainment kid, the kid who who you can imagine an American remake would have him riding around on his bike with walkie talkies and everything. He he's kind of uh timid, but you know, he it yeah, he's still likable. Everybody in this movie is likable. His father's friends that he herds reindeer with are really like the guy with the, the aviator glasses all the time or on all the time. They're all really they're fun characters. They're they're not they're not like really crazy or super distinctive, but they are all they're all likable. I think that may be what I like about them. I mean, they all feel like they could be real people. Well, in comparison to to your average Hollywood movie, you've definitely got sort of hyperbolic characters. Yes, I was I was going to say that the. the uh, what is it? The quartet of main characters mm -hmm. or, or adult characters anyway, and the children are certainly more realistic and grounded than the English speaking characters we see, especially the, uh, the rich <laughs> industrialist yeah. who is yeah. trying to excavate Santa for yeah. his own to get rich. He is such a caricature. He's, he's walking around in the, the big coats and the cane everybody else just has to look realistic but it, i think that's obviously part of what works about it is how grounded it is because the the day-to-day -day life that they go through the glimpses of it it i mean it looks like hard living but it also looks like the community kind of like they all know each other there's that scene where the cop is going around because everything like we don't see a lot of what's going in the around in the town but once they excavate santa's grave they're are reports of just like missing radiators and ovens and the all of the reindeer are slaughtered so the cop is going around and he seems to know everybody and they, they all just have a 
kind of an easy rapport with each other. They do. Yeah. Well, you see things in this movie that that you would never see in a Hollywood film. Like the kid goes out to his dad's butchering station in his underwear and snow boots. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, like I was saying, it, it looks like hard living. And I mean, growing up and living in Alaska, Anchorage isn't, isn't like this. It's just like the cold and I guess the milieu of this movie were so recognizable to me. Yeah, even though, definitely. Even though I didn't live in the same conditions that these characters are, but like their house and I could just imagine how it would feel. The dad is cooking the Christmas ham and he's in long underwear. And I can just imagine how the, the house feels just a little bit chilly, even though the doors are closed and you know the fire is going or whatever. So I was able to kind of like feel the realism of this film, which helps a lot because as the movie goes on, it gets more and more fantastical. There are some very silly moments at the end of the movie that work only because it takes its time getting there and establishing the realism of this world. And I said that uh, Pitari is kind of a Spielbergian, like Amblin Entertainment kind of kid, the, you know, the type from the Goonies or Explorers or even E.T. Yeah. There is a very real Spielberg influence on this film. I think there's actually a, a Spielberg influence definitely on both films we talk about, especially in the way that he sets up that something like the way he sets up and then reveals things like I'm talking about the opening scene where yeah, yeah. the industrialist they're drilling and the industrialist or the businessman, the English guy is yeah. excited about what they found. And he gives them all secure, like uh, safety protocols that include like wash behind your ears, no swearing, no smoking and says, Def remember, yeah. like, give these all to the people. And then we don't see them again until the people, uh, Pitari's father they find all the slaughtered reindeer and they go up to the mountain to be like, you let these wolves in. What are you it, through the fence? What are you doing? And they find the area completely abandoned. And it, like they all left in a hurry. Like the, the drilling station is completely abandoned. So you, you kind of get this slow revelation of things going bad, bad around the edges of the movie. Well, I think that there's this guy definitely took some, some crib notes from, from Spielberg not just that how how you have the children go up and they see the the like he's not even the the antagonist what do you what do you call the 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 uh the horrible foreigner he's we're well we're introduced to him at the same time as the children are and it's kind of a a, a neat way to do exposition you know so we get we get the first part of, of him digging and them seeing it and they escape and they come back and they see the holes dug and something's gone. And then we go back. And then we get the reveal at the warehouse. It's, it is definitely kind of a Spielbergian thing. Yeah, even down to the music. I thought the music had a kind of, not necessarily John Williams, but it had that like that childish, not childish, but childlike sense of wonder that it was yeah, evoking. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the book montage, that's pretty Spielbergian too. Yeah, because he 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 sets booby traps, <laughs> like the one that almost kills his dad because he puts a bear trap in the yeah. fireplace. Yep, which which strikes me as a very Spielberg thing to do as well. But yeah, we we this entire movie is basically through his point of view. Even though we do leave to follow his father 
for a while, it's always grounded through his perception of it. Like there's a scene where he ha- his father has a wolf trap in the backyard, which is basically a pit with spikes in it and a, a dead animal strung above it. And they catch what they think is Santa Claus. And like I said, it was a spoiler. It turns out that it's an elf and Santa Claus, it, we never see Santa Claus. We just see this big block of ice with a bunch of horns sticking out of it or a bunch of and two, how creepy two very are, large horns. How creepy are the elves in this movie? They're <laughs> terrifying. They're old men, like some of them fat, some of them very thin, very dirty, bearded and naked, completely naked, which is like something you would definitely not see in a Hollywood movie because it's not like, oh, he's they're hiding it in shadows. You see them just running in this at the end of this movie in a massive group like the zombies in world war z and they're all completely naked just flopping around as they're running and and as much as i'm not a huge proponent for geriatric sausage party footage i i like that they can have it in the movie because it's not from hollywood well yeah and it completely makes sense because what kind of clothes would they be wearing especially if they've been buried for centuries right but um (laughs) i i will say that it added a lot of creepiness to the end of the movie where pitari basically (laughs) like he he drops down and he's he has to they're trying to corral them into the reindeer pen but in order to draw the elves away they have to move all of the children in town over to this pen and so there's pitari standing in the middle of this pen and he can't get out and he can't move and just dozens of fully naked old men are running at him with this like look of hunger. I mean, they they had to know what effect that was going to have, but I don't think it's like the intended effect. But it it's it, it's a little bit awkward. It's definitely a, a creepy pasta moment. Also, I mean, it makes the end scene where they're training them to be rare exports more creepy than it might have otherwise been. Definitely. I, that, that's like the <laughs> part of this movie where it, you realize where the movie gets at the end. And then you think back to where it started, which was just life in this very rural community as they're herding reindeer, they're, they're preparing for the, the annual culling, the, the, the big money-making moment of their existence, basically their year. It's such a grounded slice of life life opening, even though the movie introduces fantastical elements immediately, that that ending, it kind of almost seems like it's a different world. Like the movie has by that point become a pure fantasy like this, this reality, like I, I just think about the reality of somebody selling what looks like an old human man for $85,000 to sit and take photos at them all. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because at least to me, it feels like this movie is kind of the opposite spiral of most fantasy movies. Okay. Because it's it's well, it, it starts off so so grounded, and it keeps and it kind of spirals outwards to be fantastic. And it seems like a lot of the f- movies with fantasy elements I see start off sort of sort of fantastic and end fantastic or start fantastic and wind down to believability. Okay. I can, I can kind of see that. Like, like you're, you're kind of 
often you're you're set in the in the middle of something happening in the beginning of a, of a fantasy movie of some sort, and it spirals it spirals down to where it connects and makes sense in in a reality similar to our own. Well, Whereas you, no, this that makes- kind of goes the other way, other way. Yeah, that makes sense because a lot of fantasy films always have a return to normal where yeah. they go on a crazy journey and then at the end they're back home. And they're maybe changed yeah. a little bit, but they're they're back in a familiar and normal setting. Whereas this one, they're, they're, the world is completely changed for them. They're now owning this multi-million dollar company that trains these elves to be santas and then they ship them out all over the world now of course the the company's not going to last that long though because they don't have that many i think they've only got they counted 200 yeah they have just under 200 they said like 198 yeah um did you ever see the short films that this was expanded from i didn't they're on youtube um i will I mean, they're they're easy to find. They're on the DVDs, but also a couple of websites have them. And YouTube has a couple of not the greatest quality copies, but they're fine. And this is kind of a prequel to that because the short films, the first one is like is done like a like an eight minute kind of corporate infomercial, like here at Rare Exports, like where it's just talking about the. It, the universe is not quite the same. There's a lot of changes to how things are operate from the in the change from the short films to the live uh, to the feature length version, because in the short film they're hunting Father Christmases, and they uh. they go like they go out and hunt one a year. It's just one Father Christmas that they catch and they bring back and train, and it's all done like a corporate like this is how we do it. This is how we've done it for generations since 1739. It's very, it's very funny because it, it takes a while to re- reveal the punchline, and even knowing what the punchline is, it's it it is revealed very well. The second one is basically a almost a training video. It's a kind of a a safety instruction video and a warning of what will happen if you don't follow the instructions and behave around the Father Christmases. Nice. That that one's funny as well. It has the same cast. It even has the same kid. And uh, the three men that you see in both short films are the father and the kids, uh, the father's friends. Excellent. Drop me a link for those. I'll check them out. I will. And when this episode, when this episode drops, I'll also post them on the, uh, the Twitter and Instagram and all that. But this movie had great moments. And I, I especially loved when they find where Santa is and they find out that it's not Santa because they, they get a hold of the rich European guy, the rich British guy. And they say basically like, we'll give you back Santa, but you need to give us the money for the herd we lost. And they're, they're basically, they're asking for $85,000, which seems uh, like a very small price. Once you figure out what's going on, they meet him outside this warehouse and the warehouse there's a really nice touch where the warehouse has the number 24 written on the doors. And it, so it looks like an advent calendar because there's an advent calendar that Pitari stapled shut. So he wouldn't have to open the final day. And this, uh, this warehouse looks like that advent calendar and inside the warehouse is Santa still in a large chunk of ice. And all of the elves have put around him a bunch of radiators and stoves and hair dryers and are just melting the block of ice. I think the creepiest moment of the movie is right here when the rich guy looks at the elf and 
says, that's not Santa. That's one of his little helpers. And then they turn around and there's all these old guys and they don't move for a while. They don't move when they're being looked at, but they, they are like running. But when they, they're looked at, they kind of stop and stand still. It's really, it is a very creepy moment, like undeniably a creepy moment. Definitely. I, I, I love that they took trophies from Santa before they, uh, before they finished him off. Yeah. Okay. So the big, the big ending of the movie is Pitari finally takes command. He's this timid kid. And they find in this warehouse, the elves have (laughs) piled all of the children in sacks around Santa. They're not listening to him. So Pitari has a shotgun or a rifle and he fires it. And he says, right now, it's either it's either me or Santa or like one like either I have to go or Santa has to go or I can't remember how he says it. He's like, I I suggest Santa like he has this kind of like typical badass moment and he he comes up with the plan that's going to get rid of Santa. So the end of the movie, they pile all of the kids in their sacks still in this big net and fly it out with a helicopter to draw off the elves. And at this point, he's hanging on to the net. And the net is full of children in sacks in the middle of this cold winter night. And they're flying through the air and hundreds of naked old men are chasing around them. And it, it's such a, a ridiculous look. I, I was just like watching it. I'm like, this movie is, I mean, uh, there's crazier movies out there, but this movie is bonkers at this point in it. Uh, but then back at the warehouse, Pitari's dad is drilling holes in the ice and stuffing sticks of dynamite into it and so they they blow it up but not in before they cut off one of his gigantic horns which then like i guess they're just going to mount that somewhere in one of their houses i mean but where would you their houses aren't that big though i mean this is something that doesn't really fit in the back of a giant work truck yeah um, it, I, I kind it, of wonder it, maybe it, they're going to grind it up and use it as 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 chinese medicine or something well the logistics of this ending do not entirely conform to reality because how would they operate a public business that is basically a slave trade although they aren't human they certainly look like it would it would any government entity think that that's okay would any mall say oh i'll just get a mall santa this year from them well they are in finland Oh, okay. But they talk about how they send them all over the world. They're sending the yeah, but but the one that we do see them send out. Where do they send it to? They don't send it to the United States, don't they? Send it to like Zanzibar or someplace? Yeah, it's Zanzibar. So so it's maybe it's the it's it's covert underground Santa trafficking. I guess I just didn't realize that Finland would be okay with this sort of thing. <laughs> any any final thoughts you have on the rare exports? Um, I, this is. This seems like a light conversation we had about it, but like it's a well, good. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, a light movie. It's it's not <clears throat> both of the movies we chose this time uh, are light movies. There's not a lot of deep, deep diving that needs to go on. I don't think. No, no, that that's true. But they're both they're both fun movies. I, I they are. I would recommend both of them, even though. Rare Exports has one or two kind of scary moments, and it has a lot, a lot of old man penis. Never in close-up. Don't worry about that, but it's it's clearly there. I There's think... a lot of blood, too, and you do see a lot of animal body parts. Oh, that's true. That's true. 
Well, keeping those in those things in your mind, you, you make up the decision for yourself, but I would have no problem showing this to my, well, my oldest daughter is 16. She can watch whatever the hell she wants, but I would have had no problem showing this to her when she's like 11 or so, like a younger, like preteen, I think would still be perfectly fine for this PG 13. I think it's rated R, but I think it's perfectly fine for a 13 year old. But what well, I, think, I mean, I watch crazy shit all the time. Well, I think that, that there's, while there's some nudity in it, it's, it's not sexualized nudity, which is a big difference. Most of the world is not as prudish as this United States is when it comes to seeing naked people. Yeah, that's, that's true. Because I, I think I was reading the, um, I was reading about the, the Canadian rating board that they, they can have full frontal nudity in their movies and still have it as a PG-13, as long as it's not sexual. Like a, a scene where a man is walking around naked is conceivably something a child could see if they just see their dad coming out of the bathroom and doesn't know that they're there. That's something that most kids like have an experience of seeing an adult naked in that sort of capacity. So it doesn't need to be R. It's something a kid would probably naturally see on their own. So yeah, it's rated R in America, but I do not know what it would have been rated elsewhere. But I, I think R is is misleading because I do not think that it, it deserves that necessarily. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. What's for dinner? Remember that your Aunt Sarah likes everything to be clean and perfect. I just thought you guys might like a break from macaroni and cheese with hot dogs. You were wrong. Play right together with you. What's creme brulee? I just wanted Christmas to be like it used to be, but forget it. I hate Christmas! I hate all of you! It's a weirdest thing. There's no cars, no people, not even a salt truck. Fifteen was a big year for Krampus, the quote-unquote dark Santa of Central European folklore. After gaining popularity and awareness in America for several years, he made it onto theater screens in not one, but two motion pictures, while also appearing in a handful of shorts and direct-to-video productions. In A Christmas Horror Story, Krampus was featured in just one of the four stories that made up that anthology, but he was the star of the show in Krampus, punishing a fractured family over three increasingly fraught days leading up to Christmas. Now, this is a movie I didn't see in theaters. I had the opportunity. I'm not quite sure why we didn't. I, unlike Rare Exports, which I saw on video once, and then this is my first time going back to it, Krampus I watched with my oldest daughter, and so for the last four years, it's actually been part of our Christmas, like required viewing. It, it is not Christmas unless she gets to watch, well, the movies are Krampus, Scrooged, and Elf. Those three movies she has to watch during the Christmas season. There's a few more. It's, uh, 
she yeah scrooged this muppets christmas carol is also a big one for her I, elf was okay on the first viewing but i don't know if i could take it every year i'm not going to say this loud enough i won't say this loud enough for her to hear but elf is a movie i liked the first time and i have liked a little less every year that i watch it <laughs> you know that's that's the impression i got from that film i was like okay that was that was okay once but uh Let's not I, do it again. <laughs> I know a lot of people who consider it a new Christmas classic, but it it hasn't stood the test of time for me. I don't know what it is about it where I I am just not charmed by that movie. So I kind of did not care much for Krampus the first time I saw it, but this is one movie where repeated viewings has benefited it quite a bit. Having watched it now four years in a row, this is... Like, this is a movie I very much enjoy. Part of it might be my daughter's enjoyment. I'm getting enjoyment out of it as well. But I think the more I've seen this, the more I just kind of react to the tone that it strikes. That's actually how it works with all of Mike Doherty's films. He also did Trick or Treat, that horror oh. anthology from, well, a couple of years before Krampus. I can't remember what year it came out. 2011, I think. That was pretty good. I like that one. Yeah, I... I was a little disappointed on a first viewing, but then on a second viewing, I absolutely loved it. I'll have to I'll have to see it a second time. I, I give anthologies a lot of slack because they're anthologies and they're often written by different people and directed by different people. And it's really hard to get four or five shorts that are all great and put them in a single film. That that is very true. I like horror anthologies even though even the best of them have a couple of weak segments. But Trick or Treat was all written and directed by Mike Doherty. So it, it's kind of all coming through one voice. And I don't know why I didn't respond to it the first time. I don't know what I was expecting. But the second time, it had that look of in a, a horror film that I absolutely respond to that is dark and murky, but also kind of clean. And it has that very autumnal color palette, the oranges and the yellows. Yep. And that kind of works with Krampus as well, where I like the look of this movie. A lot of a lot of like horror movies, it can look too dark, or especially modern horror movies, it can look a little too digital. This has a nice blurriness when it needs to, a nice clarity when it needs it. The scenes outside, the blue and the snowscapes and the dark, I like it. It just looks great. It has a very good visual feel to it. It's definitely very polished. I'll I'll, I'll agree. It's it's a uh, it, it technically is. it's technically solid. Uh, even even that that oh, what is the name of the the shop? Multi or ultra ultra something or other. The the shopping center in the beginning, where they have that slow motion discordant montage of 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 holiday violence. To is that was it Bing Crosby? Yeah, it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. This is very polished. That may have been one of the things that turned me off of it when I first saw it, because uh, like a lot of people, a lot of the reviews talk about how this movie seems to be a little bit too tame for the type of thing that it's going for. Like They're like, I wish this movie had a bit more bite. And so it is very polished and slick, but on repeats, it is the kind of polish that I'm I'm okay with. Or maybe I like films a little bit grittier a lot of the times, but this one, 
uh, it just had the right sheen, especially for like a Christmas movie. This was this was a good look. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, on upon second viewing, which is what my, my last night's viewing was, I like it, and I wouldn't mind watching it again. But it feels to some degree like it's a movie that was created by committee. That's probably true, just because it's it's universal. And Mike Doherty talks about how he came, he came up with the idea because I think in the mid 2000s, somebody showed him some old uh, like 19th century Christmas cards with Krampus. And he immediately started to kind of get the idea and write this movie. Oh, well, even the even the character design for the baddies felt like it was done by committee because you've got you've got a very sort of antipodal set of 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 baddies you know you've got krampus is incredibly terrifying if you look at him up close and uh the elves with the uh, stylized thurs rune on their foreheads they're pretty terrifying and then you've got the air quotes helpers that are the stuffed animals which are kind of cute and funny in an 80s schlocky horror kind of way and the cookies and the teddy bear and the angel and the jack in the box you know they felt like they were from different movies almost that is interesting because i felt like like one of the aspects i really like about this movie are the creature designs even the toys like that jack in the box that turns out to this this worm thing that its mouth opens up just ends so that it can swallow children yeah. Um, oh, I don't hate it. I'm not saying I, I disliked it. I'm saying it. They they didn't feel like they were from the same set of designers. Well, I guess I can I can kind of see that just because there is something very very old European about Krampus and his elves that isn't then reflected in the toys because some of, one of the toys is a robot, so it all looks like it's they're evil versions of toys that you would maybe see on shelves. Which I didn't mind. I I hadn't actually considered that that they looked so disparate. But I thought I thought they worked well together. I thought all the character design was great. I did think that Krampus and his elves, specifically the elves, they look a, a little bit dark crystal or labyrinth to me, which is not a bad thing. I that, no, that no. that's good. But especially the final shot where the camera pulls out and all of the the elves and some of the toys like jump at the screen from out like they're just puppets being swung in front of the camera it it very much struck me as something from labyrinth yeah and 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 like i said i don't dislike either set but they didn't feel cohesive exactly to me either like krampus he's got he's got this desiccated corpse santa face over over some sort of hairy demonic form we never actually get to see and the elves are just, you know, they would be fine in a much creepier, bloodier film. And then the the other ones are cute and not as terrifying, but also, I guess, perfect for a Christmas movie. I don't know. I, I liked them both, but they didn't really feel cohesive to me. I, yeah, I guess I can see that. Uh, I guess I can see that. But it, it didn't ever strike me as an issue because I thought the elements, the comedic elements and the more horrific elements all both worked pretty well like it, it's not the scariest movie but the cre- the the creepiness factor is is enjoyable it is not the funniest movie but the lightness of tone is enjoyable this is kind of a movie that 
isn't a hundred percent at any of the things that it's trying, but it is pleasant. Briefly before we started recording, you told me that you liked rare exports more than Krampus. I think maybe I like Krampus a little bit more, but with the caveat that rare exports is a more clever idea. It, I mean, it, it's a better idea for a movie and it is executed well. It, how do I want to put this? Because I just think Krampus is so... This is going to be damning with faint praise, but Krampus is so competent at everything that it's trying to do that it is enjoyable holiday viewing. I never... I mean, it's not challenging me in any way, but I am always enjoying myself while watching it. Oh, it's definitely enjoyable. I'm, I mean, I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to tear it apart, but it did feel like they were two separate set, sets of antagonists. I mean, we never really see the toys and the elves and Krampus as a cohesive attack force, really. You've got the toys in the house and you've got the elves outside. Well, that's true because the, the elves leave the toys on the doorstep. And so we don't see any of that. The, the, the toys seem to be just like the, the advanced force to, to kind of like weaken their defenses. And then like at the end, Krampus shows up or the elves show <laughs> up and take everybody to Krampus. Um, Except for the fact that the elves seem so much more competent. They would have been better off doing it themselves. Well, yeah, but you've also got people inside a, a house, 12 people inside a house that the toys pick off a few of them. Yeah, I suppose. But the ones that at the end that they get aren't don't seem to be much, much tough work for the uh, elves either, though. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I um, so like the, the look of Krampus is one of the things that on my first viewing, I, mm -hmm. I kind of didn't like. I think he looks great in profile. That first time we see him on the rooftop of the house kind of across the street, that's a really awesome shot. He looks so good. I did not like at first his face, how his face doesn't move at all. It's just like a like a desiccated corpse with a rictus. Not even a not a rictus. It's just like an open mouth, like everything's kind of hanging down. Right. But if you look, there's something moving underneath. There is. And his eyes move. His eyes, he's got goat eyes because he's got the cloven feet. But the fact that the face didn't move at all, it just recalled to me too much like an animatronic, which, uh, okay. which at and the first time I saw it, I didn't like. The second time and the third and the fourth, I really liked because there is digital work in this. The, the effects were done by Weta uh, in New Zealand, but it looked like they they relied as much as possible on practical effects. Like the ginger red men, when they're running around, that's CGI. But the jack-in-the-box, that's a physical thing. And mm. the teddy bear and the robot, in all of the scenes that they could, they used real things. And so the fact then that they actually just sculpted a really awesome-looking face, even though it doesn't move, I really appreciate. I, I, I like the, the effort that was put in there. Oh, I I love that face. I didn't really like the hooves. Like it felt like they could have put more effort into making the hooves look like actual hooves okay. for as much as they feature in the film. I mean, it feels like there were like four or five times where all we got was a 
was a worm view shot of these cloven hooves kind of plopping down in front of a car or outside of a window or someplace. And they were just okay. Yeah. Again, I'm going to have to say that that's something that ever struck, struck me, but maybe, maybe, um, maybe on my next viewing next year <laughs> or maybe next month. Cause we watched this really early. My, my daughter may want to watch it on Christmas week, like has been our tradition. So uh, I might, I might be watching it here in a couple of weeks again. And this movie also has a lot of the, uh, that hyperbolic character thing I was talking about when we were discussing rare exports. Okay. Like it really goes out of its way in the beginning to make everyone except the boy and the granny sort of unpleasant. Yes. It yeah. emphasizes the bad parts of every single character. It, it does. I think the movie eventually redeems that because in almost, in almost every respect, they've cast actors that are likable or, or are, are capable of bringing out the likable elements. Um, like Adam Scott, I've liked Adam Scott since I think the first thing I noticed him was Step Brothers and then Parks and Rec. And he's he's in a lot of uh, I mean, he's he's a likable presence in movies. Tony Collette is a great actress. David Koechner is really funny. And you you really hate him in the beginning. But he he I'm I'm bad with names. Is he the one who's like the the uh, bootleg uh, baldy? Yeah. So David Koechner is uh, Howard the the father of tony collette's sister the bald guy yeah bootleg baldy tom hanks right okay he's he's funny um they they cast comedians well a pair of comedians adam scott and david keckner are known mostly for their comedic acting and then allison tolman who is the the sister the you know uh the baldy's <laughs> wife she's a great actress tony collette who is um, adam scott's wife the mother of the family is a great actress. They're all really good. I, I think I hate everybody at the beginning of this movie. And by the end of it, I mean, maybe I don't like them, but I, I, I'm enjoying seeing them on screen. I'm enjoying their performances. Even, even the uh, in-laws children, cause they were all terrible. Yeah, you're right. And they, but... they didn't have any redeeming, redeeming arc whatsoever. It's like, they were terrible in the beginning. And at the end they're, still terrible you're right you're right it, they they do also make them a little bit kind of caricatures i mean i think the movie is trying to sympathize a little bit with that side of the family and the fact that they are not as financially well off as the the family that they're going to visit for christmas but then they also have them say stuff like why do they why do the rich people keep getting free stuff and the, probably because uh, they're democrats yeah they're liberals and and I think it's trying to sympathize with them, but it does also make them uh, the butt of the joke a little bit more than it makes the other side of the family. Yeah. But you're right. You're right. The The kids don't have much redeeming factor. There, There's the one kid that I don't think he has a single line in the movie. He just like people talk to him and he just stares at them. Oh, I think the one, the closest thing to a line that I can remember is that he, he drinks like half of a two liter soda and burps at the Christmas table. Yep, that would be the one. <laughs> and then the, the the two daughters are just irredeemably mean throughout the movie. But again, that wasn't a problem for me. No, I'm just saying. They, <laughs> yeah. I know by the end of the film, I didn't like them anymore. 
Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So uh, this movie got a lot of mixed reviews when it came out, and most of them, I went back and I was I was reading some of the contemporaneous reviews. I mean, it's only five years old. It wasn't hard. <laughs> they all kind of cited the tone, saying the film wasn't dark enough, and that a lot of them assumed that the movie had been written as an R-rated movie, and that the studio wanted them or like forced them to cut it to PG-13. I definitely think he wanted this to be a PG-13 horror movie. I think he was going for that Gremlins tone of, I mean, Gremlins was PG, but that was before PG-13 existed. I think even today that would be a PG-13 movie. I think also as someone, I was, I was too scared for horror movies until later in my childhood. I didn't get into them into my teens. And uh. now that keeping that in mind and as with someone, as someone with kids, I'm just happy to see like, I, I don't love all PG-13 horror. I agree that it is kind of a blight that American horror is just like now everything has to be PG-13. But I do like the availability. I'm glad there's something that I can enjoy with my daughter or that that I can introduce my kids to horror movies through. In the 80s and 70s, the ratings meant much different things than they mean now. The example I always bring up is Critters 2, <laughs> which is PG-13, uh, but has swearing, a lot a lot more swearing than is allowed in PG-13 these days. It has the most blood out of any movie in that series. And it has full, like, not full frontal, it has a lot of frontal nudity. There's a woman that walks around topless quite a bit in that movie. It always struck me as bizarre, like, well, this would not, this would be an R rating immediately these days. So... I guess it's possible if this was in released in the 80s, it could have been a bit harsher, a bit darker. But I think the tone that they were going for was very specific. And I think they did more or less successfully replicate it. Well, I think I understand where the reviews are coming from, though. Like, the toys definitely feel like they were made for a PG-13 audience. The design, it feels, for Krampus and the elves could be for something much, much darker. They could be, but even in how they're shown, as creepy as they are, I kept I keep bringing up Labyrinth. It does feel like something that you would see in Labyrinth, and it's mainly the tone and what we know of this being a horror film that makes us think of it as darker. I think you could take those characters out right now and put them in a Jim Henson movie, or a, like a particularly dark Jim Henson movie. That would not fit in like Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. But it would not be unnatural. It would not look too out of place. Mm, the elves, perhaps, because they've got the just the face masks. But uh, oh, definitely, Krampus, Krampus. Krampus is. You think you 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 could see that that twisted, desiccated uh, Santa corpse face as a mask in like uh, Muppets Christmas Carol or um, Muppets Take Manhattan. You know, maybe Muppets Christmas Carol, because the ghost of Christmas future is always really scary. But he's but that oh that's context too, though, because that's just a big dumpy puppet in like a black sheet, really. There's no Yeah, no, I'm I, I agree. The Krampus Krampus would not fit. I, I misspoke on that. Krampus would not fit in those in those contexts. But maybe in the Dark Crystal. <laughs> like it, it it doesn't have the look of the Dark Crystal, but the Dark Crystal doesn't like get to a tone at times that I think 
you wouldn't be completely out of place. Like, maybe, except that I don't think I mean, he's the, the tone is dark in, in the Dark Crystal, but you never see any corpsey business that I can recall. Well, there when the scenes when they when well, we're we're getting into the Dark Crystal. The scenes when the Dark Crystal like sucks the life force out of the Gelflings, they start to look a little desiccated. But I don't. <laughs> yeah, but a sexy doesn't cut off its face and wear him as a mask. No, but I I also don't think Krampus is is that much scarier than the Skeksis. The Skeksis are pretty terrifying. They're just kind of hairless turkeys, though. Yeah, or, okay. But they, I I think I always thought they were they were scary looking. I wasn't like I thought literally... they were scary when I was when I was really small. But I after that I just kind of thought of them as as really ugly featherless vultures or turkeys with opposable thumbs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I don't currently see them as scary. I mean, I, I, I the, think Krampus and Askexes, if I saw either of them on my next walk around the block, I would be a little scared of. Hmm. I don't know. The Skeksis didn't have a lot of mobility. I'm thinking I could take on a Skeksi. Well, you, I think you could outrun it. Definitely. Krampus has those scary, scary big leaps. And he's got those chains with hooks on them. Yeah. And you know, but I, I mean, a Skeksy, you do a DD, you do a WWF DDT, he's he's done. <laughs> well, those, those, those those silly turkey necks. Yeah, I I do think that this movie gets pretty dark for a PG thirteen, especially with the the first person who quote unquote dies. We don't see a death. Mm-hmm. We don't actually see much death in this. They're just taken away, and we see later. I guess they're they're being sent to hell. Is the the daughter in the movie and she looked to me even though the the young boy was the one who was clearly going to be the focus i thought the daughter was going to be not a final girl but you know like the co-lead of the movie with the kid i thought she was going to be a much bigger character and she's the first one to go and that scene is kind of like not terrifying but it's a dark scene it just cuts away and you see like her her hear her screaming and she's underneath this truck and the truck starts rocking back and forth. It, this movie gets to some dark places. I don't think it necessarily would have been, Im- maybe it would have been improved as an R-rated movie, huh? Like I could see this as an R-rated horror comedy and maybe it would be better, but I think this is this tone is, you know, perfect for sitting yeah. down Christmas week with my daughter and watching a movie. You're, yeah, I don't know. I, it, if it, it could be darker and and better, but it would take a specific set of directing chops, I think. But then again, this guy did trick or treat, and he did. But he also did. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. We'll, well, we can talk about that. He also did Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Well, which, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I mean, which I I don't know about you. I saw this in the theater, and. I had the same the same feeling I have with every Mike Doherty movie, where I'm like, "Well, that was okay. The monster stuff was pretty good. <laughs> that was okay." And then I watched it on home video, and I liked that movie a little bit more on the second viewing. I think the human story in that movie sucks so much. <laughs> like the yeah, human, yeah, the human aspect of that movie is so boring and ridiculous and eye rolling, but. You never go to a Godzilla movie for the human story anyway. The monster stuff is some of the best Godzilla monster fighting I think I've seen. I mean, there's... Best, best Godzilla fighting ever done outside of Japan. 
well that it doesn't have a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh competition in that regard but you're right i think like i think of things like godzilla gmk all monsters attack or even godzilla versus biolante like those have some really cool monster moments but i love the look of the the action in the in the new american godzilla i, I it was good it was good uh much better than the last uh hollywood godzilla catastrophe are you talking about the one with brian cranston because this is the sequel to that one that i'm talking oh about. wait no i'm sorry that one was was only a little bit awful but i guess it was better than the the other one that i can remember the, which the, was the 1998 roland emmerich godzilla yeah oh that 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 one is so bad so bad that's <laughs> it's pretty terrible i remember but, they had it at the dollar theater in anchorage and yeah i would go there several times a week just to sleep yeah oh man i i think we watched i don't know if we watched it together i don't think so but i know we watched it around the same time that's a movie that like i'm all about rediscovering unloved movies i like going back and finding a movie everybody says is awful and and discovering that it's actually not that bad but the american godzilla is exactly as bad as its reputation it's pretty terrible it's almost as though the quality of the film was inversely proportional to the advertisement the advertising budget that they had it was just yeah they just got everything wrong with that the the best thing about the american godzilla is it led to a couple of very funny jokes in japanese godzilla movies because in uh gmk all-out monsters attack that in that movie, it's the first time Godzilla has been seen since the 50s. And somebody in the back of the room, when they're being told this information, raises his hand. He's like, well, wait, wait, what about America? Didn't he show up in America in the 90s? And the guy in front's like, that wasn't Godzilla. The Americans thought it was Godzilla, but we don't know what it was. And <laughs> and then nice. um, he, he the American Godzilla shows up for a second in Godzilla Final Wars. And the Japanese Godzilla just immediately demolishes him, just kills him immediately. Her. Her, that's right, her. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I can't remember how we got on this tangent, just that I like Mike Doherty. Like I, I it takes me a minute to or like a rewatch to figure out what it is about his movies that I like. Like I just don't key into them right away somehow. I don't I've never I don't think I hate anything he's ever made, but I would I would say that my my praise is is about as measured as yours was. That was that was okay. <laughs> That's yeah. my So he's actually Doherty. his movies are okay. Yeah, he's a apparently his next movie is supposed to be Trick or Treat 2. Mm -hmm. But um we'll see how that that goes. I liked that the ending it has it has a classic American horror movie ending i'm not sure how i feel about that actually it just raises a few questions to me but i mean it's a fine ending it it has a nice little like kind of twist it's not really a twist but it just kind of like tweaks the ending a little bit where it seems happy but it it kind of isn't but i'm i'm just i it i don't know how to feel i don't know if they're stuck in hell or if they're going to be able to live like the perfect morning over and over again for eternity. I think, I think that both are true. I think that they're going to spend every morning as Christmas morning. 
but always with haunting memories of what actually happened, knowing where they're stuck. That it seems like those memories come upon them like later. They um, come upon them as the as what's his what's his bucket the uh, the lead wakes the up kid, and joins them. The kid opens the Krampus ornament, and everybody has a look. So he seems to remember what happened, though he seems to remember Krampus. So then, could just the next a millennia of mornings he decides not to open that so nobody remembers that it's real <laughs> then it's hell just for him yeah okay well that sucks there's <laughs> <laughs> there's an alternate version of the ending on the blu-ray in the alternate ending he opens up the krampus ornament and the only he's the only one that realizes what it means and then he looks around and nobody's paying any attention, but then he looks at the grandma and she gives him this, like this smile and nod. Like she knows what it means too. And See, then that would be, that would be a craptastic ending for me. And then the movie ends without showing the snow globe that they're stuck inside. So the implication I guess is, is it, he got his wish. They all came back and Krampus left them alone, but gave them a reminder. And he's like, you're the only one that remembers this. I don't know. Yeah, that would be, see that doesn't that doesn't sound like as as, as solid an ending to me. No, I, I think I, I prefer the one in the movie. I also I kind of liked the um I don't know if it was was CG or stop motion. It felt like stop motion. The the grandma's story in the middle. Uh knowing that but, Weta did the effects, I believe it was CG meant to look like stop motion, but it, it looked it does look great. It looks really I, I thought it I thought it was, but it's it's long enough ago. I was thinking 2015, not the best CGI. Well, maybe it, maybe stop motion, but it was it was a different it was definitely a, a different pace to the rest of the movie, and I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's a really like it is a very kind of haunting and beautiful little moment. I mean, five years ago, CGI it depends on how it's used. Like I said, this movie uses it very sparingly from what it looks like, especially it's from Weta who did Lord of the Rings and they use a lot of physical in that. So I think that it's going to do it for our discussion on Krampus, unless you have anything else you want to say. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so we are going to take another one of those very brief breaks. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about our top fives of the week. All right, we're back. And so our top five this week, we're not, we're not just going to stick with bad Santas. That seemed a little limiting. So I figured we'd just go with dark Christmas movies. Uh, so they can be horror. They can just be dramas, comedies, anything that just kind of like I think you had said the most horrible time of the year as a as a, a potential topic, and we'll we'll just kind of use those criteria, right? Okay. So I'm gonna go. My first pick is a Canadian film from 1978, Silent Partner. It's starring Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. It's kind of a heist movie. Elliot Gould is a bank teller who notices that there's a mall Santa that's banging hanging around the bank, and he discovers the mall santa's plot to rob the bank and so he kind of like gets in there and when he's he, he gets in there he makes sure he's the teller when the mall santa comes in 
and he kind of takes the opportunity to steal money for himself as well. And mm -hmm. uh, the mall Santa, played by Christopher Plummer, realizes that he has been shortchanged by this bank teller. And so the movie becomes kind of a cat and mouse, even though both of them kind of get one up on each other. So it's kind of cat and cat, where uh, Christopher Plummer is trying to get his money back and Elliot Gould is trying to outsmart him and keep the money is a Christmas movie. It has a Santa in it, but it, uh, it, it's kind of, it is a heist movie. Silent Partner from 1978. It's a fun, twisty little movie. Cool. I guess uh, in no particular order, my, my first worst time of the year movie would be uh, maybe Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> I considered that. I considered that, uh, but I'm just amused. I'm very <laughs> delighted that you picked it. I mean, it's Illuminati. It's weird psychosexual drama, and it's Christmas. It is. God, that, that's a uh, that's a good choice. That's a good choice. Have you seen that movie recently? It's been a while. Yeah, it's it's been a while for me too. I I saw it in theaters and once on home video. I I kind of want to revisit it. But I, I just haven't driven it. That's a, that's a good well, choice. Probably, probably not with your kids. No, that that is a, a very good choice. It is just Tom Cruise and an interminable case of blue balls the entire movie. <laughs> so that actually has inspired me. I may make a, I may call an audible. I may substitute a movie here in a minute. But um, also in no particular order, my next one, very obvious choice. I'm going to go with Gremlins. Which, oh, okay. That's on my list too. Well, we can talk about it. We can we can both take it. That's fine. Um, yeah, it, it Joe Dante. Uh, it what can be said about it? It's a classic for a reason. Uh, that whole Looney Tunes aesthetic put to a Christmas horror movie, surprisingly dark. One of the reasons we actually got a PG thirteen. Thematically, it's also very in line with the two movies we watched this week. Oh, definitely. I think both movies owe a debt to Gremlins. I think in tone and specifics, Rare Exports is going for a kind of just an overall Spielberg feel. I think Krampus is the one that is most definitely kind of trying to claim that Gremlins uh, attitude and spot. In it's been a while, but were the, were the characters in the original Gremlins as, as sort of Hyperbol hyperbolic personifications of of character traits as the characters in Krampus were? Not everybody. There were certainly a lot of the side characters were caricatures, like Dick Miller's army vet neighbor, the guy who names the gremlins, talks about them, you know, taking apart their fighter jets during the war or fighter planes during the war. And, you know, the people that he meets at the bank, there's the woman, basically there's like the the Wizard of Oz callback with the woman that wants to have have the Zach Galligan's dog taken away. So a lot of the side characters are are cartoonish, but the family and the main core are more just kind of like everyday people. Mm. See, that was that was one of the things that struck me as as different between the two films we watched this time. Um, really, every character in the uh, Krampus movie was sort of that that cartoonish portrayal of something. I, I agree that's where it starts out. I think maybe we disagree a little bit because I think 
that by the end of the movie, most, definitely not all, but most of them have found, uh, if not something sympathetic, something more grounded in their character than the caricatures that they're portrayed as in the opening scenes. Well, yeah, we, 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 uh, we are meant to feel uh, sympathetic to them to some degree, but they never really develop any sort of uh, complexity character-wise. You know, they're kind of just... You're right. They are what they seem to be on the surface. They're, they're, they're cardboard cutouts, sort of, which is really different to uh, Rare Exports, where none of the characters, even, even the Spielbergian uh, main little boy, are two-dimensional. They're all, they've all got these weird, lumpy bits that make them not quite fit into a, a stereotype and make them seem much more human. Perfectly, perfectly put. Okay, so I should also mention Gremlins 2 maybe the pinnacle of Western civilization in terms of artistic output that Gremlins 2 still worthy of being discovered. I, there, it, it's very divisive. There are people who think it's amazing. And then there are people who consider it just like the epitome of overindulgent sequels. I think it is. I think that movie. I think it's is both. Great. It is a ridiculous overindulgent sequel, but it, it hits at least as often as it misses. I think it hits more than it misses. I can't think of anything in that movie that I think really misses. It's such a it's such a pleasure to watch. I love all of the gremlins in that. I love the the spider gremlin, the vegetable gremlin. Um, I like how it embraces and pokes fun at the first movie. Um, well, no, I, I, I mean, there's a lot about that movie I liked, but like the the Rambo gizmo thing was a little, little cringy. Oh, and... I, I like it. I like it. I think you're, you're and... just, I mean, to use the, the holiday nomenclature, you're just being a Grinch right now. No, no, no. <laughs> I just, I mean, I know that it was intended to be cute and it just, it's not, I guess I live in the land where, where things that are intended to be cre- uh, cute are created. So my tolerance is quite high. Okay, so then my next pick, also, I mentioned it already today. It's a very obvious choice. I'm going to go with Scrooged, Bill Murray, Richard Donner film. Ah, it's been a long time. So I can't, I don't have a lot of comment on Scrooged, but I mean, Bill Murray with hair and <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwait, I can't see how it's a bad movie. It's it definitely has the best and the worst of that style of 80s comedy. I'm just saying that part of it is nostalgia, part of it is that I get to watch it every year with my daughter, and then part of it is just over, I I'm I'm okay, I'm okay overlooking uh what are some pretty major faults in that movie, but I still think it it's a ton of fun. Okay. I guess my next pick would have to be uh a nightmare before Christmas, maybe. Maybe I mean, I. It is. Well, I mean, we're not a, doing them in any order, and it's okay. kind of strategic because I have to pick ones that, if they're the same, it's better if I pick them before you pick them. And if they're different, it doesn't matter. So. It may be on your list. If it, it is on it, your list, I'd rather say it first. It is not on my list, though. It is also a movie that I watch every year with my daughter. Tim Burton. And his his movies are are hit and miss, really. When they hit, they hit, and when they miss, they're kind of terrible. But uh, 
A Nightmare Before Christmas was really good. It hit me at just the right time. It was just creepy enough to to push those buttons and Christmas Christmassy enough to hit the Christmas buttons. I just great film. Yeah, it it is it is great. It's a movie that has been overly commodified by Disney in the past. Well, it's going on twenty years now. Like the hot topification of that movie where it is both a multi-million dollar, billion dollar industry in its own through Disney, like merchandising and theme park decorations. Like they, they redo the Haunted Mansion every, every winter to be Nightmare Before Christmas themed. So it is, it is both part of a multi-billion dollar corporation and embraced by angsty goth kids to the point where I keep expecting it to lose some of its charm for me. And yet I still really get, I, I still just like really get into it every time we watch it. Well, I think, I think the big, the big reason for that is it wasn't meant to be a merchandise, over monetized intellectual property. I think it was made honestly. Yeah. Whatever you want to say, because Tim Burton wrote, well, he wrote the story for it and he produced it. And a lot of the visuals come from his sketches he didn't write the script or direct it, which I, I think a lot of people kind of unfairly overlook Henry Selick's contributions to that movie. But it is definitely Tim Burton down, you know, down to the minuscule details. It is from his mind and it is clearly something that was just in his head and not like, oh, this is going to make a really like I, as part of me looks at it. I'm like wondering how they even thought they were ever going to make any money off of it. But eventually it did. It made a ton of money. I don't think theatrically, but just over the years, it has to be incredibly profitable. Um, Burton's Corpse Bride was not the same. It was not not that good. Um, that was pretty horrible. The music in that was so bad. I love Danny Elfman. I get, I get that he kind of like gets in modes where he does the same thing over and over again for a few scores. But I still, I'm a huge Danny Elfman fan. And oh, yeah. I cannot tell you any of the music from Corpse Bride, even though part of the thing is that, it, I mean, it's a musical and that, that's a big part of it. I, I have the soundtrack. I just cannot think of any of the music. Whereas I don't think there's a day, goes by, day that goes by or week that goes by that I am not humming one of the songs from Nightmare Before Christmas. While yeah, I'm that's or something. exactly the same. Like I don't, I really liked most of the music in The Night Before Christmas, and I can listen to all of it. But The Corpse Bride, man, it sounded off-key to me or or something. It just it didn't – it was abrasive to my ears, and I couldn't get into it. Yeah, just in general, it's – it maybe, maybe on a rewatch. I haven't watched it in a long time. Maybe I'll find something charming about it because stop motion is always inherently charming to me. But it is kind of a forgettable movie, which I – I hate saying because it, it's clear like so much work went into it. Stop motion is such a time intensive undertaking that I, I hate to just dismiss anybody's work as forgettable, but it is not a movie that that stuck with me at all. No, and I hated that maggot that they made. Uh, <laughs> it like the Peter Laurie looking maggot. Yeah, the, the, they intentionally made it to sound like 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 Laurie, but. It doesn't really, and it's just sort of abrasive. Tim Burton is a director that I go back and forth on because you're right that he's hit or miss, 
but I stopped watching his movies for a few years. There's a handful of movies that he's made over the last 10 years. I have n- never gone towards. Then I, I kind of like looked at his IMDb and I'm like, oh, you know what? I've only seen two movies Tim Burton has done that I actively disliked. There's some that I thought were forgettable, but he still has like a okay, really good- Which were the two ones he, he made that you dislike? Okay, so um, Alice in Wonderland. Okay, fair, fair. And uh, The Planet of the Apes. Oh, which I didn't hate the I didn't hate the Planet of the Apes. I didn't uh, hate it. I I think it's very misguided. I think the makeup is amazing. I think some of his direction and the design of it is amazing. The music is incredible. It is one of my favorite Elfman scores, or the theme for. Uh, Planet of the Apes is one of my favorite themes he's ever done. The end is a little whack, though. Yeah. So let me let me look here. So those are the only two that I actively disliked. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was okay. Corpse Bride. Oh, I did not like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Corpse Bride. Oh, it, it holds no candle to the original. Corpse Bride, as we said, was a little forgettable. Sweeney Todd was fun. It had a few issues, but I still thought it was it was good. Alice in Wonderland was awful. Dark Shadows. I actually watched Dark Shadows recently, and that I really, really liked Dark Shadows. Uh, I have very little history with the TV show, but I thought the movie was maybe overlong, but but really fun. Like it really had the right tone. I thought. Okay, the I've only seen it once. It struck me as sort of oatmeal-y. I mean, he had such a good run up until like I think. I mean, we're we're looking at it here. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, good. Batman, good. Edward Scissorhands, good. Batman good. Returns, Ed Wood, good. Mars good. Attacks. Good. I like Mars Attacks a lot. Uh, yeah. Sleepy Hollow, then Planet of the Apes. Good. Eight. Okay. And then Big Fish. Great. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Horrible. Corpse Bride. Garbage. Sweeney Todd. Okay. Alice in Wonderland. And then burning bag of dog crap. <laughs> and then Dark Shadows, Frank and Weenie, the um the claymation live uh, feature length version, Big Eyes, which I still haven't seen. And I haven't seen the rest of these. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children and Dumbo. I like that one. I I thought it looked terrible, but I like Eva Green. And so I, I thought I would see it eventually. But I've been hearing from other people that that one's actually very good. I really liked it. Okay, so that that goes up on my list then. It's moving up a few spots of my watch list, things I need to see. Okay, so we've, we've talked a little bit, or well, probably too much about Tim Burton here. So I'll, yeah. go, with my, I'll go with my next one. And I'm going to have to be very honest and say that I don't think I've seen this movie in over 20 years, but I had it on VHS and I liked it a lot when it came out. And I watched it many times in the next, the few years after it came out is... The Ref with Dennis Leary and unfortunately Kevin Spacey. Oh, that was a good movie. I don't remember it a lot, but I, I was a huge Dennis Leary fan. Yeah, yeah. Dennis Leary was great. And I thought that movie just had, it was consistently funny all the way through. And, you know, the family drama, that's one where like the family drama, they were a little bit cartoonish at times, but it, it started to get to some real places as well. Uh, I I need to watch it again. I do need to watch it again. But um, that's, yeah, so I, I, I could watch a, that one again too. I really liked it, but I, again, I haven't thought about it in like twenty years. 
Yeah, so that I, I don't necessarily have a lot to say about it right now because it's been so long since I saw it. But the ref, I would, I would recommend to people if it's okay. as good as I remembered. I really recommend it. <laughs> well, on that note, I guess I'd have to put in Black Christmas. Oh, okay, good, good. I actually just realized I didn't have that on my list. Nineteen, the, the the old one, the the nineteen seventies. Uh, yeah, because there's been two underwhelming remakes in the last twenty years. And it's been—I mean, it's been a long time since I saw that. But I mean, that's that's one of the one of the the first uh, slasher films, really. Yeah, it is. There's there's a few that could maybe fit that template, but it's—I think it's the first of its kind, definitely, and very influential on what would become slasher movies in the next couple of years. Um, you know, something that's interesting that we didn't touch on when we were discussing those uh, the, the two films for this week is the link between the Krampus character and the dark Santa character and the, the morality, the morality, morality tale that slasher films become after Carpenter made Halloween. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> that that's kind of a, a wide open subject. What were you thinking? We can get into well, it. I, just, now. I mean, I mean, it's kind of almost like the actual uh, personification of, of, of more of morality that that you get with Krampus and the imaginary dark Santa are very similar to to slashers modern modern day slasher uh, bad uh, villains. These are both eh, implicitly horror films, right? And yeah. you've got an antagonist who is get, gaining vengeance on people for their for their sins. Basically. Well, I I think. Going back, I think it is true in slasher movies that there there, there can be a very real misogynistic bent to them. Mm -hmm. uh, even some of the good ones have have very questionable gender politics. Mm -hmm. But I think also the idea that slashers are punishing premarital sex and drug use and partying mm -hmm. is and loose morals is maybe a little bit overblown because even in in carpenter's halloween like jamie lee curtis is the one who lives and i mean she talks about how far she's gone with her boyfriend she smokes pot at one point and even in like you think about it basically because friday the 13th because jason died or supposedly died because the camp counselors were off having sex so there is an implicit tie there but it isn't 100 through the movies that's not it becomes that way later on, but it, it, I think it became overblown and then it became kind of a trope after the fact, after people started to call it out. I guess you can say that exists did, a little bit. Oh, go ahead. Did Laurie Strode uh, toke up in the first Halloween? Yeah, there's a scene where her and um, I think it's PJ Soul's character are driving and they're both smoking pot and then they see the, the character's dad the one, the girl who's driving the car, and her dad is the sheriff. Uh, it's a movie I I watch. I watch Halloween, not every year, but pretty close to it. It, I mean, it's an obvious choice for Halloween viewing, but it makes, like it, it, it hits the right spot for me. I don't watch it that often because I I really like it. I don't want it to lose what it's got. It actually doesn't for me. It it gets a bit. 
I get a little bit deeper into into what makes that movie work each time. Like I, I actually, I do enjoy seeing how things are put together. And I think that movie is is put together so well that watching it almost every year hasn't removed any of the power from it. Oh, well, maybe I'll have to give it another watch here for Christmas. <laughs> for Christmas, yes. Oh, but let's say, let's talk about Black Christmas. God damn, is Margot Kidder awesome in that movie? Like, she is hard drinking, hard smoking, foul mouthed. She is so much more interesting than boring old Olivia Hussey, who is the lead in that movie. I wanted more Margot Kidder. Definitely. Uh, okay. So, my last one, man, I'm going to call an audible here because you, uh, <laughs> you, you picked Eyes Wide Shut. I'm going to go with one that. Oh gosh, do I want to do this? Because it isn't technically a Christmas movie, but it has parts of the movie are set at Christmas. Um, American Psycho. Oh, okay. Parts of that are set during Christmas. I think I think a couple of chunks of that movie are set during Christmas. Um, I know it kind of spans a little bit of time, so it, that's not like a huge part of it, other than like there's a Christmas party, I think. But um, yeah, if we're going for dark Christmas movies, you don't get much darker than or dark movies set at Christmas, you don't get much darker than American Psycho. Maybe sure the book enough. more than the movie, but... I really liked uh, I really liked that movie, and it uh, it turned me on to Huey, Huey Lewis and the News uh, <laughs> more than I might otherwise have been, you know? Did you ever read the book? I did, but it's been a long time. I read I read the book on, on a flight to London, and it's the only time a book has ever made me close it in disgust. <laughs> like... I think it was when it got to the habit trail part that I was like, nope, I'm going to, I can't look at this for a minute. I don't think I've ever read a book more full of stuff I did not want to read that I still enjoyed. If it wasn't graphic descriptions of him having sex, it was graphic dis descriptions of him mutilating women. If it wasn't that, it was three pages on what skincare products he liked to use after a shower or five pages reviewing a Huey Lewis in the news album, <laughs> which. Okay. Fair enough. I don't I, know. I like, I mean, uh, I was no gonna, sorry, sorry. I was going to say the movie does an amazing job of taking all of that stuff that in the book, like it's necessary for his character in the book. It makes sense, but putting that and tying it to the murders in the movie in a way that is, um, well, it saves a lot of time, but also underlines what that means for the character. Oh, geez. For my last pick. How about uh, Batman Returns? Okay. Uh, I can totally get behind that, even though that is the second appearance by Tim Burton on your list. I guess there's no rule against Well, it. what can I say? Oh, this, is he not allowed to appear tw twice on the list? No, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying there's no rule against it. I don't know why I just acted like there was. I mean, well, we both agree. When he hits, he hits. And when he misses, man, it is a hot pile of garbage. But Batman Returns is definitely a hit. Yeah. Oh, that was such a good movie. I just, I watched the Burton Batman films early on in this uh, this never-ending lockdown that we're on in the states and um yeah it's such a i know it was 
considered too dark and that's why he was replaced by Joel Schumacher but man Batman Returns is is like perfectly pitched I I think that's a that's a great movie um well uh, perfectly pitched is kind of tricky when you're talking about DC comic movies like it's a great movie and for the movie the pitch is perfect but if you're talking about Batman as uh, an intellectual property i don't know if that's the right way to go oh this now is... yeah i okay sorry go ahead oh no, no i just i mean it's it's really complicated especially, especially with someone like batman or superman because dc has never really solidified the character as a specific thing they try and make him kind of all things to all people they want it to be something that kids can enjoy and they want it to be something gritty that adults can read and everything in between. So, so their tone is always a little muddled. That is you know true. I mean? But I think, so my introduction to the character was Burton's Batman. As a kid, I watched the Batman 66, but like Batman in the theaters is, is what got me collecting comic books. It is, it has shaped my image of the character, even though it gets so many things wrong about the character. If you want to, if you want to call it wrong, cause it's a movie, it's its own thing. Yeah. There are so many things that are so cheesy about Batman 1989 that is still in my head, the concept, my conception of the character. And so I, okay. I are I, you, Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. What's your question? Burton or uh, Dark Knight Rises Batman? Oh, well, Dark Knight Rises Batman? No, I don't. I, that movie was... Had its or, own... Not Dark Knight Rises, you know, Dark Knight series. Um, okay. Um, man, you know, I, I want to say for his nostalgic purposes that Burton's Batman's Batman movies are my favorite. I really enjoy Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. I think those those are great and they also kind of approach what you're talking about where they're trying to like the movies seem to be investigating like who is Batman for like what is this character's appeal uh, mm -hmm. they throw that away I think they throw that away completely almost for Dark Knight Rises but it like Dark Knight is such a tricky movie on its own like is it a is it a kind of fascist police state movie or an anti-fascist police state movie you know batman himself is kind of a fascist character he's a well well you could argue that all superheroes are basically uh uh kind of idealized fascism um i would argue no. that i would argue that superman does not fit that mold at least in his original and much of his uh uh depictions because he's an immigrant like an immigrant farm worker who comes to the big city as a reporter all of his villains in the early days were um were industrialists that were taking advantage of workers they were he he fought like shitty slumlords and um so he's always like superman at his core is a representation of kind of the working class or the um, the underappreciated classes in America where Batman has always been a, bil a billionaire 
using his money to go out and beat up drug dealers and men escaped mental patients. So yeah, okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But the movie, The Dark Knight, grapples with that in a way that I think is fascinating beyond just everybody like everybody loves Heath Ledger as a Joker, who which is great. I think Batman Returns is maybe my favorite Batman movie, but on a whole, I like those two first Christopher Nolan movies better than the whole of Burton's two Batman movies. But I think I yeah. think if, if, on an individual basis, Batman Returns is my favorite. Okay, oh, that that's difficult to say. I, I mean, I love Batman Returns, and I love uh, Burton's take on the Penguin and Catwoman, and even on Gotham, but. But Nolan's Batman, Nolan's Batman, the character Batman himself, I think is so much better. I, I think now I'm just, because of what Christopher Nolan ushered in, like, so Burton ushered in an area, an era, like there weren't a lot of comic book movies in the 90s, but they tended to be very kind of cartoonish and gaudy more so because of Joel Schumacher, but the seeds were there in the Tim Burton mm -hmm. films. Right. And in the 2000s, when we get X-Men, and it, it starts to, they're, they're starting to be more comic specific or more comic, uh, more loyal to the comics, uh, mm -hmm. how, how the characters are presented in the comics. What Nolan did to superhero movies, although specifically just the DC superhero movies, has had such a negative effect. I am sick of, it worked for Batman, but I am sick of slow, ponderous, tortured hero movies. I don't need, um, like I don't need my Superman to kill people and be a brooding loner. That's what Batman is for. Superman is <laughs> supposed to be, he's supposed to be a bright, cartoony symbol of just, like wholesomeness and that's people you know that's the complaint against superman but that's kind of what his character is supposed to be and i i miss comic book movies that are fun marvel gets that but nolan's movies are not fun in that way and i think batman returns has the darkness of batman with i think the right level of cartoonishness like the penguins, the army of penguins with rockets on their backs. <laughs> and <laughs> the the idea that like Gotham looks like a German expressionist film. It, it looks like it's its own little bubble universe. And I, I think it's, um, I, I prefer that like fun tone than uh, to the, um, what Christopher Nolan kind of brought about in the DC universe. Which, I, I, that seems that seems a little much blaming it all on nolan i mean no because he i'm not i'm just well, saying, well blade blade is pre-nolan and blade was also pretty pretty gritty and sort of along those same lines wasn't yeah it? but you also like it's gritty in the way that you have wesley snipes in a rave full of vampires dancing in blood and you know practicing his martial arts like killing people with his sword and flipping around all yeah. over the place so it's it's dark but it's fun the nolan movies don't try for fun and i think the nolan movies are great i'm just saying that like 
like the Frank Miller and Alan Moore stories that inspired Nolan, the industry took the wrong lessons from those movies. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. But I would, I wouldn't fault Nolan for that. I don't, that's, I, I don't, that's, I, that's tone deaf toadies trying to make a buck. I don't, I don't fault him for it. Aside from the fact that he produced and had a heavy hand on the Zack Snyder Superman movies. And that tone was all wrong. Um, oh, well, putting Zack Snyder in charge of any movie is kind of a bad idea, in my opinion. Yeah, but it was it was Christopher Nolan. I think he wrote the first The Man of Steel, and he produced it. And of course, you know, it it took he gave him them Hans Zimmer. Like it was, it was so much they were turning Superman into a Batman movie that was such a mistake. Yeah, definitely. They're they're two different uh, two different tones, or they should be. Which is, um, which is why I hated Batman versus Superman so much. Oh, just, that was, that was, I never even finished that movie. What? I didn't pay for that movie because it wasn't out here. I pirated it and it was so bad that I didn't finish it. Well, so that what's terrible about that is that Batman is dark and brooding. Dark and brooding Superman is bright and wholesome and they clash, but then they have, they do in the comics, of course, have a, a complicated friendship, but in the movie, it's just two dark and brooding loners, like being angry and sullen at okay, each other. Okay, here's a question: What's not bad about that movie? Okay, Ben Affleck um, is Batman. Horrific. I the, thought I thought there were some good Batman moments in that. I didn't think Affleck. Are you was, serious? I didn't. The think... world's greatest detective, <laughs> Martha. Did yeah. you say Martha? That's. That's dumb, but there's there's some Batman <laughs> action in that that I thought was pretty good. Uh, I don't believe you. Okay. <laughs> I haven't finished the film because it was that bad, but I don't believe you. Well, you notice I'm not giving it too much of a defense because it, I saw it <laughs> once and I don't need to go back. And I, oh, that was so awful, that whole movie. Yeah. And Lex Luthor was like a cringy, cringy, barely got pubes, angsty, yeah Tech giant guy yeah okay so um how did we okay we were talking about batman insurance <laughs> <laughs> and i think i think just in general i want my comic books and my therefore my comic book movies to have a little bit more of the strangeness and silliness like i've i've really started to get into comic books from the 70s because mm. there's especially when you look at Superman, what's going on with Superman. And there's a, a collection I have, uh, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, which is collecting a bunch of Jimmy Olsen stories. And there was a whole run where Jimmy Olsen would just like find himself in the middle of some weird adventure. And he would always get himself transformed into something. Like there's a, an issue where he's, a, he's dressing up in drag uh, to go undercover. There's an issue where he gets turned into a giant turtle. And it's so ridiculous and it's so stream of consciousness writing that it doesn't like, it, there's no layering. It's just like this happens and then this happens and this happens, but it's also really imaginative and fun. And I, I miss that from what comic movies have become. There's some of it. Oh, okay. There's some of it, particularly in like guardians of the galaxy, James Gunn, like the cosmic Marvel movies are starting to get that even in Dr. Strange, but it, it's not like, it, it it's something that I miss. And I think, um, I think Tim Burton's 
Batman movie recalls that for me in a way that like, I'm kind of just a little bit tired of what modern superhero movies are. So I, I like going back to those. Uh, I can understand that. Well, it's, it's basically, it's, it's basically production companies trying to figure out how to make any particular IP the most profitable. And so they've all got these different recipes of, of making it gritty and dark or making it crazy and comic authentic or making it child friendly. I've, I've never, honestly, I've never been that into uh, mainstream US comics uh, because they're all sort of that, that adolescent power fantasy yeah to some degree and i kind of i dig on things that like like the you definitely have adolescent power fantasy here in japan as well in their uh sequential art graphic novel uh microcosm but you also have uh stories that have specific you know beginnings middles and ends and you have characters with a single character arc and their story's over. Whereas in the United States, it's often feels like they've got, you know, two dozen comic book characters that they've been using for almost a hundred years. And they're just stuffing some iron rods into the corpse and moving it around like a puppet so that it entertains a new generation. I definitely like self-contained stories now. Or even like large, long form stories like um, uh, like Sandman is 75 issues or something like that. And I like yeah. I like that. I like something that where they can they can have an end point and be moving towards it nowadays. And yeah. when I go back to superhero comics, I tend to go back and read like like stories that like this is a an adventure from this character, not like the mm. ongoing like we gotta do six of these titles featuring Batman every month stuff. Yeah. Well, the problem with, with your, your, your power fantasy is it's always going to be a, a thing of brinkmanship. Like you're always, you're going to always want to try and draw back your audience with uh, a new antagonist. Who's more of a threat than the last antagonist. Cause the last antagonist was defeated quite handily. So there's always going to be this, this newer, bigger, more powerful bad guy and to defeat the newer more powerful bad guy they're going to need the to to discover new uh more skill or new more intense uh techniques or, or superpowers which makes them more powerful and less believable and it goes on and on and on until you've got galaxy-wide conflict and multiple universes and all of that nonsense. Oh yeah, I I I get I agree with that. I hate that every superhero movie now ends with a a world or universe threatening event. Um, I I like the small scale. I think that's why I've liked the Ant Man movies because those are very small scale in the grand scheme of the Marvel universe. <laughs> what? Ant Man small scale. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just recorded for, for an episode uh, that might be out by the time that your episodes come out. 
I just uh, watched the New Mutants, which is is oh, it is not great. It is not getting very good response either. But I liked that it was a superhero movie that was an hour and a half long. When's the last time we got one that was less than two hours? It was ninety minutes. It told a very small scale story, and it was about more about the characters. And it was not successful in a lot of that, but it was still refreshing to see. Like I was, I, I'm very upset by that movie. It should be a better movie. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I like everything about the movie, but it doesn't work. Yeah, well, <laughs> you can you can hear the episode. I paired it with Hulk, Ang Lee's version of Hulk. Oh, there's another movie that nothing works in. <laughs> I I'm actually well, well. You'll hear the episode. I'm going to cut some of this out. But I'm a huge Hulk fan. I I have loved that movie since uh, 2004, whenever it came out on video. I remember loved is maybe a strong word, but I am a pa- I I offer a very spirited defense of that movie. On the I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't think it's garbage, but I don't think it would ever have been successful. Like it does not have the things that make a movie successful. Yeah, I, I some, somewhat. Um, well, what I say in the episode and what has always been my line on the movie is that it's an Ang Lee movie and it has too much Hulk smash, like <laughs> mutated poodles, like it, it, it hammy acting. It has too much of that for the Ang Lee art house drama crowd, but it also has too much like talky talky drama for the Hulk smash crowd. And it is almost perfectly pitched to dissatisfy both crowds. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, agree. I'll agree with that. I'm, I'm really glad it didn't succeed though, because as much as I like, um, Eric American Hunt. history X Hulk. Um, I like the new, the new guy better. Oh, I, I think they Marvel figured it out when they decided that the Hulk is going to be a supporting character in other movies instead of the star of his own show. I think that's the way they should have been doing the Hulk. But I, part of what, part of what makes me sad about that movie's failure is it is the last time a director would be given that much control over a, a comic book property. It, aside, maybe aside yeah. from James Gunn, who seems to be working in the Marvel style anyway, he seemed that seems a good fit. Like, but what about what about Joker? The guy who did Joker had an awful lot of autonomy. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But he also had, he also had an kind of. It seemed like an unwilling Martin Scorsese along, and people listened to him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you felt about Joker. I thought it was. I thought it was okay. It was basically mashing together King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Yeah, I didn't um I didn't hate it. Uh I don't like that portrayal of the Joker as much as I like Ledger. Yeah, I, I But think... I, I, I have real doubts that I'm ever going to like any Joker as much as I like Ledger's Joker. Oh yeah, I, I can see that. I think Joaquin Phoenix did a great performance. Like his his acting is great. I think it's just in Ooh. service of a character I don't care about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it is all it is so obviously a mashup, like you said, of those two movies. Like, like there's there's so much um visual uh vocabulary taken from the King of Comedy 
And I guess that's as a uh, as an homage, but really it just feels like plagiarism, kind of almost. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, that that's our discussion for today. Is there anything else you wanted to add or pop in here with uh, Angus? Anything you want to talk about? Uh, happy Turkey Day. Well, it's going to be way past Turkey Day here. Well, uh, happy whatever day it is, everybody. Mask the fuck up. Yes, yes. Everybody wear your masks. Wear your masks. Well, that'll be it for us this week. If you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're picking this up. Rate, review, and subscribe. It does help us out. Also, if you want to follow along, you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at TwoHeadedPod. There's also a Facebook page. Just you know, go online, search for the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast, and you'll find the Facebook page, I'm sure. And thanks for listening. We will see you all next week.